0: we we'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. Today I wanna to address the subject of stewardship, accountable stewards, and as I even mention the term stewardship, I know what many of you are thinking. Okay, here he goes talking about money and giving. Well, frankly, I wish it were that easy and I wish it were that simple. What well, God has entrusted to us is so much larger and bigger and deeper than just resources and finances. But he does call us to be accountable stewards for the things that he's entrusted to us. Let's begin with a parable which the Lord told. Matthew chapter 25, just follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. Jesus says, For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called... His own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And when he went on his journey, left these men in charge of these different talents. Immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents and said, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. I probably should say right now, these are not like talents like singing and playing guitar. This was a unit of uh, money. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who received two talents Cain said to him, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful slave, you were faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things, enter into the joy of your master." And the one who had received one talent came up and said, "Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours." But His master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I would weep where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And upon my arrival, when I received my money back, I would have gotten it with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given, and he who has will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Throw the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I wish we had time to devote a full—not um, even sermon, but a series—to this, this parable. But at the heart of the parable is, is a set of principles. God entrusts believers, God entrusts people, God entrusts those who say they follow him with responsibilities and with stewardships. And God expects that we will respond to those stewardships responsibly and faithfully. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God has a serious set of explanations that he lays out in his heart, in his mind, on and for you. There will be a great day of reckoning. Everything you have been given is a gift. We're gonna categorize those in a minute, but you've been given stewardship to oversee things that he's given you. But one day he will call us to account for the gifts and the gifting that he's given us. How does that work out? Spurgeon said this, as sure as ever there is any intimate love between Jesus and any soul he trusts that soul with something to be done something to be endured something to be guarded and more and over more and more something to be held as a sacred trust We're going to do now, this is the beginning of the year, and each year we do something on stewardship, and it's it's rarely just about finances and money. That's one of our stewardships. But in January, for the last few years, we've kind of pulled the car over from our expository study. We've been studying Mark, as you know, and just said, let's look at a bigger picture. Let's gain some perspective on our stewardship, what God has given us, and how God has entrusted us with His stewardship. And how he expects us to report back having done something with the things that he's entrusted to us. So I wanna look at five areas of accountability with you. Five areas of accountability. And just finish these these areas by saying believers are, and then we'll answer the accountability. Believers are, number one, accountable stewards of our time. We are accountable stewards of our time. Turn over to Ephesians chapter five for a moment. I'm going to be flipping around in some different passages. I'm always reminded of Walt Kaiser, who said, Every preacher should preach a topical sermon once a year and then immediately repent. Um, So (laughs) we may have a couple this year. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, Verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Walk was a euphemism for live, for life. Be careful how you live. Not as unwise men, but as wise, how? Verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a stewardship not only of time, but of life. God has given us a certain amount of minutes and seconds and hours and days and months and years and decades. And Psalm 139 says he's marked every single one of them. This is a humbling thought, but as sure as you know what your birthday was, God knows what the day of your death will be. He will be surprised by no accident. He'll be surprised by no disease. He will never look to any member of the Trinity within himself or any angel and elbow them and say, I didn't see that coming. He knows the exact moment and circumstance of your death. Not only that though, Psalm 139, David says, "You know every single one of my days. He's marked them out with a certain attitude of expectation." This passage talks about what that means. This first stewardship is really of our time, which is the same thing as saying, "Our life." Look at verse 15. We're going to have four little subpoints, if you want to jot these down. How do we live faithfully as a steward of our life or our time? First of all, we live carefully. Verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Be careful. Be mindful. Be deliberate. Be intentional. Stop and think about it. It's a demand that's active, not passive. I think this boils down to, can I just say it? Having a calendar. Having a plan. I remember it was a high school student and I had a wrestling coach <clears throat> who once told me and it stuck I don't know why it stuck when he told me but I'll never forget it he said "Ricky if you don't organize and run your life someone else will" That's pretty powerful Do, do you own your time do you own your calendar do you plan your days and your weeks Sounds a little sterile and maybe clinical, but my wife and I have regular calendar meetings. We have business meetings as a couple. We look at our, our, our week and our, our, our month and, and our six months and our year and our travel and birthdays and holidays and, and the kids being here and going to see that. It's just, it gets complicated. Do you own the stewardship of the time that God has given you? Because time is one of the few resources that you'll ever be entrusted with, that once it's gone, you can't recover it. There is no recovery of time. What are your usages of time? We could have a little detour and study what the Proverbs says about the lazy man. All of us know what it's like to be lazy, but look, Please understand, every time we have this kind of discussion, some people think, well, should I have a day off? Should I have a vacation? Should I have a break from my work? Or should I just work, work, work? God has given us time to recreate, time to reflect, time to enjoy life. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us, if anyone is going to enjoy the blessings of this world, it should be a Christian who can give God glory for those blessings. But Paul is saying, are you being deliberate and careful about looking at the time God has given you and allotting it to his glory. Secondly, he says, live wisely. Not as unwise men, but as wise. This puts us into two categories. categories. There are wise people who use their time and there are unwise people who use their time. And then there's a kind of a third category, which I think is all of us. There are times when we're wise and times when we're unwise. I don't know that these are uh, uh, absolute polar opposites. Well, he's wise. He always uses his time well and wisely. He's not wise. He never does. No, no, it's usually we're somewhere in between. We have good days, bad days, good hours, bad hours. Wisdom is sometimes lived not in the imperatives of Scripture don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. Wisdom is lived in making decisions about what's best even over what's good. So making wise decisions means looking at the the things that are presented in our day and saying, what's the best use of my time? And listen, Satan comes, 2 Corinthians 11, as an angel of light. Don't be surprised if he tempts you to spend time on things that look good but aren't best. Thirdly, it says, live timely, verse 16, making the most of your time. And then he adds this little caveat because the days are evil. It's amazing how many books and seminars there are about how a Christian should budget for their money and very few on how they should budget their time. I think time is more valuable than your money. You can reclaim money. You can make more money. You cannot reclaim time. Once time is gone, we will never have that moment ever again. Physicist John Archibald Wheeler says this, time is what prevents everything from happening at once. Now, those of you who are engineers may understand that at a deeper level than I do, but it's a pretty good quote. Everything doesn't happen at once. God allows time to space things out, which gives us a multitude of decisions Paul is clear. Time is a commodity. It's a gift. It must be managed. It must be stewarded. It must be overseen. It must be budgeted as an expenditure. Why? Because the days are evil. In other words, we are up against something. In our use of time, evil days, the evil that surrounds us in our world, is going to creep into our value system and, and begin making us make decisions that are unwise, bad stewards. And will not glorify God. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days, Moses prayed, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, Lord, teach me to order my days and and number them so that I can give back to you the the decisions that I've made that are wise and best even over what may be good. Remember C.T. Studd's famous dictum, his little little phrase that really changed a generation, launched countless missionaries, pulled people into ministry. C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will, what? Last. What a great filter to put our calendars through. Jim Elliot, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep, and gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and a fourthly here in this little passage we see live circumspectly verse 17 so do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is these are two poles you're living wisely you're living foolish you're also living according to what god's will is this isn't a mysterious you know what is god's will for my life who do i marry where i live what car do i get what job do i that take um uh, what are the decisions i'm going to make for my my food my nutrition and my hydration today Too many people wanna know what God's will for their life is in the areas that aren't spelled out in scripture and scripture will feed into our decisions about those. But this is talking about the will of God that tells us to do right and wrong, good from evil. And the only way to know how to live circumspectly according to the will of the Lord is to know what he said, where? In the word. How you doing on your time? If God were to ask you today and in effect, we could, we could almost say that he is. If the Lord were to say, I gave you seven days this last week, how many of those were invested in priorities and values that reflect your love for me and what's best for you and best for the people around you? You will never have last week to live ever again. It's gone. But you know what the good news is? We do have this week. And to walk circumspectly now as a good steward of the time God has given us is what Ephesians calls us to do. Making the most of the time because we live in an evil day. Secondly, believers are to be accountable stewards of our resources. You knew this was coming. It might strike you a little different than you're expecting though. Accountable stewards of our resources. Matthew chapter six. Turn back over to Matthew six for a moment. Familiar words, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Then he adds this little footnote, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, they're insecure, but here's the command, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now you might be saying, what are you talking about, Jesus In order to clear it all up, he sums up in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's the point. You cannot serve God, and the best translation of that word is wealth, money, finances. When we look at this passage objectively, kind of stand back from it, see what what Jesus is doing with this this little admonition in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Money and resources are tests given by God. Everything that God has given us is a test to to ferret out, to sort out, to expose our values, to show our, our priorities. I'm gonna admit it, it's always hard for me as a pastor to talk about money and stewardship, giving and and resources. But I've had to face the the fact that over the last few decades of of, uh, avoiding that, that it's really pastorally irresponsible. Jesus says a lot about money. Listen, my family and I are graciously cared for by your sacrificial giving. I am always aware of that blessing. I count it Among my my favorite, I pray for you and thank the Lord on behalf of, of your care for us more often than I can even count. But there should be no conflict for us to sit and talk about money. Why? Because it's not just about giving to the church. That's such a small sliver of us being stewards of the resources that God has given us, it's not just money. When he says, Jesus says you can't be a slave to God and money, he's not talking about going to a bank account, looking at the numbers and being worshipful. He's talking about money, meaning what your potential is to buy things and to invest in things and also what you've already bought and invested in that you own. This is all of our resources. These are the physical commodities that we've been given. Right in the middle, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He informs us that our hearts follow our treasure. Jesus is saying, show me your checkbook, your credit card statements, your receipts, your investment portfolio, your stocks, your bonds, and I will show you where your treasure is. We read earlier in Matthew 25 that Jesus gives five talents to one and two talents to another and one to another, and he comes back. He expected those resources to be invested and to be turned into a profit. Jesus doesn't doesn't preach against making money or even investing in money or or even gaining from the investment in money. What he's after here is our hearts. Very clear that Jesus doesn't see money as evil. He sees it as a test to show us where our, our priorities are. Here's how it works. Wherever you are vested, that's where your interests follow. Randy Alcorn writes, suppose you buy shares of General Motors. What happens? You suddenly develop an interest in GM. You check the financial pages. You see a magazine article about GM and read every word, even though a month ago you would have passed right over it. I think what he's saying is right. Wherever your values and priorities are, that's where your heart is pulled toward. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He goes on. We won't take the time now, in verses twenty-five to thirty-four, to say, oh, "Are you, are you going to worry about being taken care of? Do you not know that Jesus takes care, that the that the Lord of the universe takes care of, of, birds and sparrows and?" It's so easy for us to look at our lives and think, "Well." Wow, if I invest in what I think honors the Lord, I might lose out. That's never the case. Does that have to do with our giving to the church? Of course it does. But please, that is only a small sliver of our stewardship. The inability or the unwillingness to give uh, uh, in uh, Uh, offerings at church, is is not the problem. The problem is way upstream. What decisions caused us to either not do that or not be able to do that? We don't give to the church so that we can keep the lights on and pay pastors. We give to the Lord so that we're reminded reminded over and over and over, "This, this, this is already his. I'm not giving him something that's mine. I'm returning something that's already his. So I'd encourage you as you're looking at your, your financial stewardship and your giving and your, your investing and your, your caring for your kids and vacations and cars and houses and that those are filtered through the glory of God. Money is not the problem. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, not the money itself, the love of money. And some... Paul says by longing for it for money have wandered away from the faith pierced themselves with many griefs he says money things resources materialism can actually pull your heart away from Christ again money is a test given by God Hebrews 13 5 Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Being content with what you have. Don't we live in a world that constantly tries to unearth and erode our contentment? I mean, those of you who golf, do you ever go into a golf store and say, need nothing here? Those of you hunting fish, do you go over to Shields and Bass Pro and Cabela's and say, what nice mounts of those animals they have? Well, you might say that, but do you also see what you want? Bed, bath, and beyond. I always find something I need in there. Yes, I've been there. Yeah, I need in there that I didn't know I needed until I saw it. And then there's the magazines and the emails, and the advertisements, all trying to tell you whether you know it or not, you're not content unless you have what we offer. The writer says, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Footnote, that doesn't mean you don't get a new shirt or coat or blouse. It does mean that we're content with what we have and not trying to find contentment in things. There's a third area. Accountable stewards of our gifts. Believers are accountable stewards of our gifts. Look over at 1 Peter chapter four. 1 Peter chapter four, verses 10 and 11. We were speaking about this at our men's training last Thursday. 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, each one has received a gift, use it or employ it, serving one another as good, here's our word, stewards, accountable stewards, of the manifold grace of God. That's powerful. We have been given gifts to steward as manifold Expressions of God's grace. He explains the two main categories of these gifts in verse eleven. Whoever speaks, there's speaking gifts, teaching gifts in the church, instructive gifts, is to do so as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. Now, as a footnote to that, if you are going to teach and speak on behalf of God, and you want to do so as having your words measured against the very utterances of God Himself, there's only one way you can do that. What's that? You teach what God has. Said, his utterance is already, which is why we are committed to expository teaching and preaching. Then he says, secondly, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In other words, there are some who serve. Serve is such a broad, broad uh, paintbrush. Serve can mean emotional service. It can mean uh, uh, capital or physical service. We have, as a... As you know, we have a a pile of snow outside. People who are shoveling and salting and removing snow, we're serving. People who are putting coffee together, we're serving. People who stopped to hear someone express how their day was, we're serving. People who stopped to say, I know that you have a, a relative or someone who's sick who's in the hospital, how are they doing? How can I pray? That's serving. It's serving someone else's benefit and someone else's good. By the way, there's nothing in this uh, text that tells us that those who have uh, been gifted in, in speaking categories don't have serving gifts as well and nothing that says if you're a servant that you don't have teaching and speaking gifts as well either either so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. We do what we do for him because of him as a signature of him, to reflect him, to show great things about him and how great he is. It's amazing how how we use the term gifted today. We talk about musicians are gifted, vocalists. He's a gifted vocalist. I heard it yesterday on, on television. What a gifted athlete some of you are gifted in mathematicians. We're praying for you. Artisans who are gifted. Cooks who are gifted. Gifted mechanics. Gifted with children. Gifted with animals. Gifted with your hands. Gifted as a speaker. Gifted with money. On and on and on. Think about how he, he's so gifted. When you say someone is gifted, that implies a giver. Right? Right? Who has given you your talents? And listen, talents aren't necessarily spiritual gifts, but every talent can be used spiritually as a gift for God's glory. What talents and gifts and abilities and inclinations and proclivities and interests do you have? Those are gifts of God. Are we using and leveraging those gifts? for his glory, for his good, and the, the betterment of his body, his people. Everyone has received a special gift. Romans 12 gives us a list of them. Don't think that you were somehow at the back of the line when God was giving out gifts and, and he came to you and says, sorry, we're out. No, you have been gifted. Can I say it in a way that might be awkward? You are God's gift to the church. We throw that around as, a, you know, oh, he thinks he's God's gift too. She thinks she's God's gift too. You know what? You are God's gift and have been given God's gifts for the church. You're a steward of those things. Speaking and serving and caring, showing the manifold grace of God, Do you know where you're gifted, by the way? I'm not asking you to go take a spiritual gifts survey. (laughs) Uh, Those can be helpful, but I remember taking uh, a spiritual gifts survey when I was a younger Christian, um, about six months apart, and realized I had completely opposite gifts than I did six months ago. So it might be whatever mood you're in that day. If you wanna know how you're gifted or what gifts you've been given, have a good discussion with those who know you best. Just say Where do you see me most able to serve? Teaching, speaking, instructing, serving behind the scenes, making things better for people, or both? Where's my accent? Even independent of that, what are the, the resources, our previous point that God has given you, how can I leverage those for God's glory and his good, the good of his people? Are you good at affirming the gifts of others? You know, sometimes we become so self-consumed with am I gifted, am I not? What do I have? What do I not have? What do I want? What would I like to give away? Do you affirm the gifts of others? How blessed it is when someone comes and says, I've seen X or Y or Z in your heart and that is such a blessing to me. That is such good for the people that are around you just to encourage that. Number four, believers are to be accountable stewards of our relationships. I'm only going to briefly mention this because this could be a a year long series. Um, We we talk about this sometimes in our, our, our men's training as roles and goals. It's to look at your whole life and say, My life breaks down into different roles that I have with different people. And do I have goals inside of those roles to glorify God in them? Think about this for a second. We have a multitude of relationships. You're a son or a daughter, you're a father or a mother, you're a brother or a sister, you're a family member, you're a church member, you're an employee, an employer, you're a coworker, you're a merchant, you're a customer, and it goes on and on and on. What are your roles? What are the primary roles that you occupy? It, it, when I do this exercise and look at my main roles and the goals I have them with them, I start with the Lord. I am first of all a child of God. What are my goals to grow in my relationship with God? 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I want to be an expert handler of God's word and know scripture, am I reading it every day? What are my goals? Uh, Do I have a reading plan? Uh, If I want to serve my wife, that's another role that I have, I'm a husband. What are my goals for serving Kim? What does she like, what does she dislike? How can I make her her day better in the little things? How can I make her life better in the bigger things? Those are the the roles, that's the role that I have with her. I'm a father. How can I, what are my goals with each of my boys to make them men of God and, and men in the world who know how to lead and shepherd and love and care and be sensitive? How, how am I thinking through the goals of that relationship? I'm also a, a coworker with the other pastors and the serving staff here at the church. What, do, you, do yourself a... a, a Kind of a fun exercise. Maybe you can do it with your, your brother or sister or wife or husband or a friend. Just sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, What are the roles? Who am I? What are my roles? Inside these roles, do I have deliberate, intentional goals to make these relationships glorify God? I think if you'll do that, you will be shocked and convicted. Maybe how well you're doing in some areas and how negligent we are in, in others. Roles and goals. Take the time to evaluate. Those are our stewardship God has given us with, with relationships. And then fifthly and finally and most importantly is accountable stewards of the gospel. Believers are accountable stewards of the gospel. You've heard the old saying, it's attributed to many people, I haven't traced down exactly who said it first. What do you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away? What do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? And the answer for a believer is Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. It's eternal life, it's salvation. Eternity is the ultimate determining measure of our values. Think what it would mean like if, what it would be like if someone were to tell you, and this were not just an exercise in speculation, but really true, you have a week to live. If you knew that you had one week to live, how would that change your understanding of the gospel? I think if we knew we had one week to live, the people who we've been a little bit shy about telling them about life and time and eternity and hell and heaven and Christ and the gospel, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his offer of eternal life, I think our shyness would evaporate pretty quickly. What if, kind of changing the metaphor for a moment, what if by some uh, miraculous feat of engineering, You were working in a laboratory down in Kansas City, and you, for some reason, got a combination of elements together, and the concoction that you came up with was a for sure 100% cure for all cancer. Would you just keep that to yourself? Would that be something important enough to maybe share with someone who has cancer? You see the parallel, don't you? What if you knew, and I'm saying this tongue in cheek, what if you knew that everyone had a terminal disease of sin and was going to die and go into an eternal Christless hell? And you had the answer for them to to not go there and to enjoy God forever. And you understood the good news that we, the wages of sin for all of us is death. We are all headed to a Christless judgment in eternity. But God, being rich in mercy, demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we know that if you'll embrace this by faith, You can go to heaven and not go to hell and enjoy your creator who brought you into existence to enjoy fellowship with him. What if we knew that were true? Would that change what we did with the stewardship of the gospel? Of course it would. R.C. Sproul once said, a true belief in hell will drive a person mad, or move them to evangelism. Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you believe, think of this, you and I as Christians have been given the stewardship of the gospel that we can tell people and give people and it can give them eternal life. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 2, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. First Corinthians 4 1 and 2. What he's saying is we've been entrusted with the gospel, and God expects us to be responsible with that gift. Gospel should be guarded as our greatest treasure. What a gift. What a gift that we live in a place where someone told us the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, the good news of the gospel. There are so many places around this planet who did not have the opportunities that you and I have had. You know, I was thinking about this on a flight recently. I was sitting on... On a plane, I, I typically try to get into a gospel conversation with whoever's listening to me, that, whoever's sitting by me. That gets more and more difficult the more um, uh, specialized the headphones get. Uh, typically, you sit down on a plane and somebody pops the headphones on, and then, then you're, you don't want to say, Excuse me. Um, I usually open my Bible and kind of see what I'm reading anyway. Um, I was thinking about this after I had an encounter with, with a a gal who um, wasn't interested, but I had a very uh, cordial talk with her about what was most important. I was getting off the plane and it dawned on me I can't remember a time, and I hope that changes this week, when someone tried to evangelize me. What a blessing that would be, wouldn't it be? As a Christian, if someone said, I want to tell you the gospel, it means just to smile and say, I want you to tell me again, because I love it. I, I believe the gospel. Let's talk about it. When was the last time someone talked to you about your soul and just invaded your privacy and said, do you know the Savior? Well, let's be on the opposite side of that. God forbid that anyone would stand at the portals of hell at the judgment of God who had known you for years and years and we never told them the stewardship that's ours. Verse two says we were expected to be faithful stewards. Donald Whitney says this, the gospel is infinitely more than a ticket to heaven. It's a message that changes not only a person's destination in eternity, but his heart and mind here and now. The gospel transforms more than a person's relationship to God. It also transforms a person's relationship, I love this, to everything else. Comprehensive. We can go on and on. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 7. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, ourselves as your slaves, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, this is one of my favorite dense, rich passages in all the Bible. Listen to this. Light shall shine out of darkness, talking about Genesis, is the one who has shown in the hearts our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then Paul says, "We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have the eternal truth in a disposable human body. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 14, Paul says to Timothy, you have been entrusted with the gospel. Be a good steward. It is our greatest gift, our most treasured offer. And I think if we go back to Matthew 25, when he's talking about these talents, he's primarily talking about this, the corpus of instruction, the gospel itself that Jesus was giving to the people who were listening to him. He's going to expect a return on that investment. We have something far greater than a cure for cancer. Think about this. We have the cure for hell. That's profound. We also have the cure for loneliness, the cure for despondency, the cure for depression the cure for any emotion that is is spent wrongly in this world can be resolved and, and fulfilled in Christ. What a gift. So, first of the year-ish, time, resources, gifts, relationships, the gospel. How's your stewardship? If the Lord were to have a physical appointment with you this afternoon and go over these categories and you were to give a grade to yourself. How are we doing here? You know what, what makes us struggle in each of these areas? A lack of deliberate attention to thinking about them. I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest, best, worst, most strategic things that Satan does is he makes us so busy we don't stop to think about our stewardship. God does, and he's going to expect a report on what he's given us. That's what Matthew says. He's going to expect, he's expecting when we give that report that we have invested and had a return on these resources, not, not buried them and walked away and said, we'll deal with them when I, when I see God later. You know, when we come to the end of a sermon and a service, it's on my heart to always invite those who, who don't know Christ to consider that, and I am and I will and I should. But it's more than an appendage to a service. These realities are realities, they're, they're real. These, these priorities are, are sourced in an eternal God who gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If you don't know him, there is no hope that your priorities and your values and your stewardship will ever be in order. No hope. But if you want them to be in order, we would love to talk to you about them. People around you would love to talk to you about them. Our prayer will be open in a few minutes. We'd love to pray with you and talk to you about them. You can have lunch with someone and we'd love to talk to you about them. Jesus, listen, is coming back And he's going to ask you and me what we've done with these stewardships. It's a powerful incentive to say, this is what I did. And can you imagine, can you imagine, can you imagine the God of the universe, God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body saying to you, well done, Well done, good and faithful servant. Text says, enter into the joy of your master. Come enjoy me. Let's come and enjoy eternity together.